Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. Well, I want to tell you this morning that my grandmother was a bird watcher, and I loved spending time with my grandmother throughout my childhood. And one bird that she taught me about was the starling. So you can tell from this picture that individually a starling just really isn't much to look at. But when you put hundreds, even thousands of starlings together in what's called a murmuration, they make the most visually stunning flight formations. Watch this. Isn't that just amazing? Starlings can fend off almost any predator when they fly together this way, but the origin of their synchronized movements is very mysterious and unknown. It's generally agreed that the way starlings do that is each starling only pays attention to the 12 birds nearest them. And because of that overlap, they move as one at the direction of a force much greater than any individual bird. They move at the direction of their creator. Well, in Ephesians 2.11 to 3.6, Paul paints a picture of a unified group of people, the church, who move as one when surrendered to Jesus. And just like the starlings, this unity is beautiful and mysterious and directed by the Spirit of God. So let's ask the Spirit this morning to reveal this mystery to us us together. Let's pray. God, we just come eager to hear from you this morning. Would you move me aside? Would you speak to us? Would you teach us? Would you reveal this mystery? How How you move in your church, how you make us one unified body. We look forward to what you will teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, Leah did an excellent job of presenting the heart of the gospel in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. To Jewish and to Gentile Christians, Paul reminded us of our spiritual deadness and our collective purpose, saved by grace through faith to do the good works that God had prepared for us to do together. Well, in this next section of text this morning, Paul specifically addresses the uncircumcised Gentiles in the audience. So we need to take a minute and review who these people are. You'll remember from our study of Exodus through Deuteronomy that the Israelites were Abraham's covenant descendants, chosen by God as his people and marked with this physical sign of circumcision for all the males. Together, the Israelites were to live under God's law in contrast to the world around them as a light for the nations, meaning all other people groups that didn't have the covenant mark of circumcision. Now, this was for a very specific purpose. It wasn't to flaunt or brag as being special, even though the Israelites struggled with that. But it was to distinguish the God of Israel as the one 
true and living God amongst many pagan gods so that he could draw all men to himself through faith. So last semester in Joshua and Judges, we saw outsiders like Rahab, the Gibeonites, and even pagan judges, representative of all non-Jews, demonstrate faith as they were welcomed and used by God. And they reminded us of that original promise made to, Ab- made to Abraham in Genesis 12, that all nations of the earth would be blessed through him, meaning that one was coming through his lineage who would unite all nations into one people, and that was Jesus Christ. So in the New Testament, this word for other nations is Gentiles, and it simply means those born without the covenant mark of circumcision, but now sealed with a new covenant mark of ownership, the Holy Spirit of Christ. And since you and I are included in the Gentiles, our outline for today as we consider this text is going to be as follows. What we were what Christ has done, what we are, and becoming what we are. If you like to divide your paper up into into quadrants, you can divide it into four, and that's where we're about to head. So I want you to open up your Bible. I'm going to have you flipping through through it today a little bit, but we're going to be in the text, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, and we're going to start with what we were says, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world." So first we see what we were. We were separated from Christ. And this denotes an uncrossable chasm like we sang about this morning or an abyss. And we often think of this as a chasm on the horizontal plane where two sides are separated from each other. But I like this picture because it shows this aerial view. The chasm is really more on the vertical plane It's the chasm, the insurmountable chasm between heaven and earth. Well, next we find out that we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers. Verse 19 in some versions adds foreigners. So if we were alienated, then we weren't citizens. If we were strangers, then we weren't known And these words depict another impassable line of division. I think of it like this razor wire border separating natives from immigrants or the guilty from the acquitted. Well, next, we were hopeless. I believe that the deepest need of every human being is to be loved forever and for your life to count. And by every worldly metric, we hopelessly, hopelessly fail when we try to achieve this on our own, apart from God. And so finally, we were godless. We did not have access to God, therefore we were hopeless. And by all accounts, we were utterly lost. 
Aren't you glad that the text doesn't end there? I am. So what has Christ done? We see these four, four things that we were. What has Christ done to change it? I want you to follow with me now in chapter 2, verses 13 through 18. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So there's that phrase again, but God, that Leah talked about last week. It's just said in a different way here. But now, in Christ, you are no longer separated. So we're no longer separated. What are we instead? We are brought near. Verse 13 reminds us that Jesus bridged that uncrossable chasm between heaven and earth by coming down, by bringing the kingdom of heaven near to us. So he, he brought earth, he brought to earth what was in heaven. And so fully God, he became fully man, just like us, lived without sin, yet paid the death penalty for all humanity's sin. And sprinkled on us like the, the high priest did in the Holy of Holies, Jesus' blood makes us holy, able to be in the very presence of God. The Hebrews believed that life is in the blood. So his life for our life. Eternal life as son for terminal life as sinner. Well, what else has he done? We were once alienated, but we are no longer. We're no longer aliens, foreigners or outsiders. We are now made new and whole as one new man in Christ. So verse 14 tells us that Jesus himself is our peace. He's our shalom. He's our fullness and our wholeness. It's a unifying force that literally and figuratively tears down walls and holds us together. So he literally tore down the physical wall in the temple that separated the Jews and the Gentiles from worshiping together. But he also removed the restrictive nature of the law used to promote fear and division, and he restored the heart of the law, which gives freedom and peace. So I want us to look at some verses together to help us understand how is Jesus our peace? It doesn't say he brought us peace. He is our peace. So let's think about this together. I'm going to just put some, some verses up on the screen. I want you to look them up. So flip over to John 14, verse 27. These are Jesus' words himself that he spoke to his beloved disciples. He speaks them to us today. He told them, peace I leave with you, 
my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So Jesus gives us his peace. His peace is our peace. Jesus is our peace. And he, he specifically told them not to be afraid. I think in our culture, we, we believe that fear is a unifying force. But Christ's peace is stronger than that. Christ's peace is our peace. Then let's look at Galatians 3, 28. Flip over there. I'm going old school on you. I'm not putting the verse up on the screen. You got to look it up. <laughs> In Galatians 3, 28, Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then Paul says this again in Colossians chapter three, verse 11. So flip over just a few pages. In Colossians three, verse 11, Paul says here in Christ, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So in our culture today, I think it's obvious that differences are what seem to unify. Just to name a few, we, we are separated or unified by our heritage or by our ethnicity or by our social status or maybe even our political affiliation. But Christ's peace is a stronger unifying force. He is all and he is in all. And then look down a few verses, Colossians 3, verse 15. Paul says, so you church, you all, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. And so the peace of Christ alive in the heart of the church makes every nation, every tribe, every tongue uniquely one new humanity in Christ. So the unity we find in salvation is that we are one race, the human race. We have one problem, sin, with one solution, the blood of Jesus, and with one living hope, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I think Paul is telling his audience, you are not Gentile Jews or Jewish Gentiles, but you're something completely new, one new man, the body of Christ. Now you're defined as Christian, not Jew, not Gentile, but Christian. You are one new person. You have a body and Christ is the head of your body. You are part of the body of Christ. I was trying to think of how to illustrate this and <clears throat> all I could think of was the color wheel. When you mix colors, when you mix yellow and blue, you don't get yellowish blue or bluish yellow. You get a whole new color, green. We are a completely new humanity in Christ. Well, next, we aren't hopeless anymore, praise God. But what are we? Well, we are reconciled 
The text says, Jesus reconciled us, us meaning Jew and Gentile, both in one body through the cross. The word reconciled means restored to relationship or harmony. So all that frustration of imperfect love and purposelessness, that chaos and that discord inside of us that spills forth into hostility is put to death in Christ. Because we are restored to harmony to God, we are also restored to one another. We are loved so completely, so perfectly in Christ that we're finally able to love one another unselfishly, not for our own gain or for our own pleasure, but for God's glory alone. And then lastly, we're no longer godless. We go from godless to having direct access. From no relationship to intimate friendship. Look at verse 18. Through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. You know that you're a friend when your name shows up in somebody else's phone, right? They recognize you when you call. And we have sisters, a direct line of communication with God the Father through Christ. He recognizes you when you call. He sees Jesus come up on the, on the call line. Uh, my kids used to sing this song that I loved, and it was called God's Telephone Number, and it was Jeremiah 33.3. And, and it says there, call to me, and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things that you do not know. That's God's telephone number, Jeremiah 33.3. Okay, so what we are. This is getting into some confusing language, and I hope that we can, we can reveal the mystery together today. What we are, it starts in verse 19 of chapter 2, and it goes all the way to chapter 3, verse 6. It says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens... But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, we just used a whole bunch of metaphors there. And the reason that those metaphors were necessary is because a deep mystery is being revealed. So chapter three, one through six tells us about this. Listen for the word mystery. It's used over and over again. Starting in verse one of chapter three. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So he says very clearly here, this mystery 
is that anyone in Christ, Jew and non-Jew alike, are members of one unified body, Christ's body. And that's radical and that's very hard to understand. So he says it's like several other things. So we're gonna go back to chapter two. This is where I'm gonna get these, these three metaphors that he says. So being one body in Christ is like three things. Number one, it's like being citizens of a kingdom, a nation. You are God's people. It's also like being family members of a household with adoptive rights. You get to share the same name, the same inheritance, and the same mission. But then finally, it's like being living stones of a building, a temple where God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit dwells. So in contrast to that great temple of Artemis in Ephesus, he's saying you, as the church, are a better temple. So these three things are kind of hard to understand. They're, they're metaphors. What does he mean by that? And so I want to um, challenge us to think about becoming what we are. We are citizens. We are family members. We are living stones. How do we become what we just were declared that we are? I want to suggest that each one of these metaphors is a more intense one than the one before it, with a more powerful shaping force applied So first of all, a king lives in a kingdom with his people, and his people may live miles apart from one another, but they follow his rule. A father lives in the same house with his family, just a few feet away from one another, and he provides for their needs. And a builder fits the stones together to build a structure. And God makes us his people. He makes us into a temple where he dwells. Each living stone cemented to the others by a powerful force called a cornerstone. So I want us to think about this principle. The more powerful the force that shapes you, the more fitted you are to everyone who is shaped by that force. One more time. The more powerful the force that shapes you, the more fitted you are to everyone and everything else that is shaped by that same force. So under a king's rule, you feel an affinity to the other citizens. You feel a national pride. Under a father's protection, You share a name and a home and a common identity. You belong. But at the builder's discretion, as stones or bricks, you are shaped in a hot oven so that you perfectly fit to the brick next to you. And the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, is the shaping force of the entire building. All the other stones align to him. And without him, The entire building collapses. So surrendered to Jesus, his shaping force is more powerful than the way your nation or your family has shaped you. He completely changes your identity 
the way you look at everything, so that you are bonded more tightly to one another in this room than to anyone else by any other force in your life. And the foundation of this building is God's word. The teaching of apostles and prophets are its credible sources. Friends, he's describing the church metaphorically, not, not the bricks that make up the building across, across the parking lot. He's describing the people who together God makes into his dwelling place. We are the dwelling place of God. Now, can you make sense of these metaphors just by showing up to an assembly across the street every so often? I'm gonna suggest no, you can't. If you are a Christian, God has changed your identity from a person to his people. You are part of the church and you're shaped by Jesus. So it works kind of like a cycle and I wanna show you this picture and we can just wrestle with this for a minute. You see surrender on the top of of the cycle. Your surrender to Jesus is not the starting point, but it's an ongoing process as a follower of Jesus Christ. In surrender, you die to your identity as a self. And when you do that, Jesus, through his spirit, cements you in a way to everyone else who is surrendered to him. And then your identity starts to become the group identity. You are a people. You are part of the church, God's body, Christ's body. And as such, just like the starlings, you start paying attention to the people around you. You start loving them, bearing with them. And when you do that, you start to know Jesus better. And now you're able to surrender to him more completely. And it keeps going and it keeps going and it keeps going. So I wanna ask you this morning, where are you on that cycle Maybe you don't feel connected to other people because Jesus is not your shaping force. Maybe you aren't surrendered to him. Maybe you haven't died to yourself and taken up your cross and followed him. But maybe you're somewhere else on the cycle. Maybe you don't feel connected to Jesus because you're not invested in the people around you and whom he dwells. A favorite theologian of mine said this. He said, community is not an organization. Community is a way of living. You gather around you people who are made new in Christ, people with whom you would never naturally be drawn to or affiliate with, and you proclaim the truth that we are the beloved sons and daughters of God. Community is not easy. In fact, it is the place where the person you least want to live with always lives. (laughs) Can I say that again? Community is the place where the person you least want to live with always lives, but that's what makes the testimony all the greater to the world. So only a force as mysterious and as powerful as Christ could hold us together like that. So just like the starlings, sometimes all we can do is ask God to enable us to see 
the people around us. And maybe it's the people at your table this semester. You're asking God, help me to see them more clearly. Whoever they may be, maybe they're people who are different than you. And you listen to their stories and you share their burdens and you weep when they weep and you rejoice when they rejoice. And in so doing, we become who Paul declared that we are. Well, despite her many mistakes, my grandmother modeled this for me too. So I have a picture of all of my grandparents. I was really blessed. I got to live with all four of these people. I grew up with all four of them. But the grandmother that taught me about the starlings is the one to the right of my husband, Raymond, there. And she was really special. And there was a time when I had to tell her about Raymond, that when I was dating him, and, and I knew that he was the man that I was going to marry. But I didn't want to tell my grandmother. I didn't want to tell her about him. As you can see, he looks a little different than the rest of us. He's Mexican, of course. And I was afraid that my grandmother's upbringing in the racially segregated South, full of bias and all kinds of prejudice, would prevent her from accepting this person that I loved. But she really surprised me. In tears, she told me that she had asked God for a second chance to right the wrongs of racial discrimination in her past. And she felt like he was giving her a second chance here. And she said, if I loved Raymond, then she would too. And in Christ, we would love him together. I think you can see that by the way she's holding onto his arm in that picture. She welcomed him wholeheartedly into our family. And she helped everyone around her to do the same, to include my own mother. And sometimes it's just that simple. We usher in the peace of Christ as ambassadors of reconciliation. And we, we, we become what we are, his kingdom citizens, his family, his dwelling place. Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much for the, the things that you have taught us in this text. God, would you just use your spirit to help these truths come to life and give us ways that we can apply them. Help us to see the people around us, to usher in your peace. Help us to be your dwelling place, your body here on this earth. Give us the courage to do that together. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.